0: It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You are
1: Locked On Vikings, your daily Minnesota Vikings podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Locked On Vikings. I am your kind of sick Host, your pal, and the kid you copied off in math class. My name is Luke Braun. You can find me on Twitter at NFL. You can find the show on Twitter at Locked on Vikings. This show is available anywhere you find your favorite podcasts like Google Podcasts, Himalaya, Apple Podcasts Spotify, whatever you like. And if you don't like any of those services, or if you're a commuter, you don't want to be looking at your phone while you're finding your favorite podcast, you can just ask your smart device, play podcast Locked on Vikings. It'll take you right to the most recent episode. So today we're going to spend most of the show talking about the Saints' defense. Uh, we have two shows to preview the Saints, so I can kind of spend a whole show on the defense, spend a whole show on the offense. So we're going to talk a lot about the Saints' defense, how to attack them, how other teams have attacked them in the past. Uh, but first, a little bit of news. The second injury report of the week is out, and it turns out that Eric Kendricks was upgraded. He practiced on a limited basis on Thursday. We will see as Friday goes on if that pattern continues, and if so, it's an optimistic sign for Eric Kendricks playing in the playoff game. On the other hand, Mackenzie Alexander and Andrew Sandejo are still out with a mysterious illness. We thought it was the flu. Mike Zimmer denied that it was the flu, but wouldn't specify what the illness actually was, so that is a very odd situation to monitor. The Cowboys have finally pulled the trigger and parted ways with Jason Garrett. This is relevant to the Vikings because there are reports that Jerry Jones will spare no cost to find his new head coach, including extending trade offers to the Vikings for Mike Zimmer, which creates an interesting situation and something to keep an eye on moving forward. That really changes the calculus of everything we've been talking about with regard to Mike Zimmer and Kevin Stefanski. If you look at Mike Zimmer, the established coach who has been pretty good, or Kevin Stefanski, the rookie who may not be as good but could be even better, you kind of see this very easy risk-reward dynamic and you can kind of parse it out that way. But when you add compensation for the risk-reward part, that helps you hedge your bet, and it makes that a much better decision than it otherwise would have been. The thing is, I have no idea what kind of compensation a coach would get. The last time this happened was John Gruden back in 2002. And the league has changed a ton since then, especially the way that they treat draft capital. If I were Rick Spielman, though, I mean, I would ask for as high of a price as I could think of. I mean, give me three firsts and let's work back from there. I I wouldn't do that uh, just for the draft compensation, but it certainly does help tip the scales if you're otherwise torn, kind of like I am. As for the injury news... It is really important that uh, Eric Kendricks will probably be able to play in this game. Mike Zimmer has said it. He's now practiced on Thursday. Hopefully, he practices on the Friday injury report. You might even know this as you're listening to this. Mackenzie Alexander is still out. That could definitely uh, cause an issue because the Vikings have had a little bit more success with a cornerback rotation where they use Mike Hughes on the outside, and when they do that, they do that because they have Mackenzie Alexander on the inside who can play that slot role. If Hughes has to stick in the slot because Alexander is unavailable, then you won't be able to rotate uh, Waynes and Rhodes in and out as much. You'd have to use more Holton Hill, and that's not something that Mike Zimmer feels uh, that much more confident about. Otherwise, we would have seen more Holton Hill snaps by now. As for the mystery illness, uh, it is fortunately only affecting Sendejo and Steven Weatherly, who are both uh, rotational players, although they have their important roles, and it would be unfortunate to lose them. It would be a lot more unfortunate to lose somebody like Eric Kendricks, so we'll just have to figure out what that illness is as more information becomes available. Moving on to the actual Saints defense, the place where I want to start is with Marshawn Lattimore, who is, of course, their premier cornerback, probably the most important player on most defenses, and of course, I mean, Mar- Marshawn Lattimore is is a superstar. He hasn't had the kind of year this year that you probably expected coming off of last year, but that is not that much of an indictment. He's still very good. He's had two really, like, poor games, and that those games came against the Los Angeles Rams and the Tennessee Titans, and if you notice a pattern there, then... Uh, good on you, because that's what we're going to get into later. Lattimore is particularly important to the Saints because, I mean, he's a sticky man corner. There was actually, uh, speaking of sticky man corners, there was a, a funny tweet from Darrell Revis illustrating Revis Island and how, it, basically, it was a, a picture of a pre-snap alignment where there was, like, nobody near Darrell Revis. He was, like, very truly all alone, and the entire rest of the defense was, like, crowding. I think it was the three-side of a three-by-one split, but Durrell Dar- Revis was, like, very alone, and that's the kind of thing that you. Could have when Revis was in his prime. That was Revis Island, right? You could put him on an island. You could play ten on ten, and that favors the defense. And I- I've seen the Saints do that with Lattimore a little bit. Obviously, not to the level of Revis in his prime, but he does a- a- f- allow them to do that a little bit. There was a phenomenal article uh, released on Football Outsiders by Derek Class, and he goes by QB Class on Twitter. It's kind of a must-read for this one, and it explains one of the concepts that the Vikings have used a ton throughout the whole season. Some call it Yankee, uh, some just call it post-over, but it's usually Diggs and Thielen, and you have one. One of the two run a deep post, and you have the one of the two run a deep over from the opposite side of the field. So they kind of end up crossing each other's paths right where the free safety is responsible for them, and you, you force the free safety to either choose Diggs or Thielen, and then you throw at whoever the other one is who will have a one-on-one matchup with their corner. It's a cover three beater, it actually works pretty well against split safety alignments, it's, it's a really popular play concept right now, and it's something that uh, if you remember recapping the past... Packers game, they actually get a touchdown on this on the first Packers game and on the second Packers game, they employed something, some people call it like a zombie, some people call it like nailing the over, but essentially what you end up with, because there's only two deep routes and it's usually uh, called against like cover three or even cover one, you have a cornerback who's covering a deep third that's not being attacked and what that guy needs to do is, you know, kind of identify the route concept and basically go lurk underneath that deep over. Uh, which is where Kirk Cousins threw that deep interception to Kevin King in the Week 16 game. Kevin King was kind of lurking, and you basically can go hopefully make a play on the ball. The free safety goes and cuts off the deep post, and you can counter the concept that way. So the Saints also know how to do this, and a big part of that is actually Marcus Williams, who does look like he's going to play. Don't let uh, miracle history fool you. Marcus Williams is a very good safety, and he was that year too, but the combination between Williams and Lattimore, I think that those two guys are smart enough to figure this out, take away that concept. So what you need to do is you need to show that concept, but then have something different happen deep down the field instead of it just being a post and an over, Maybe the over route suddenly stops and turns around. The Vikings actually ran that against the Chargers, got a huge catch to, I, I think it was Kyle Rudolph. And you can even, like, let the wide receiver kind of read that and say, okay, what kind of, you know, what are these D-backs doing and and just let them kind of sit down wherever and, and hope that they and Kirk Cousins are on the same page, you know, give them a few different options for what to do when the cornerback is nailing that over route. So the Vikings have already been employing this, but if there are any deep attempts, it's likely happening in this like configuration in this little chess match of things going on. So I'm really fascinated to see it.
0: Hi, this is David Locke, the CEO of the Lockdown Podcast Network in this crazy, unprecedented and unnerving time. I know we're all living our lives a little differently. I thought we had some of our sponsors over the time that might be able to help you out. So we've reached out to them to get you specific offers. Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of free delivery credit for their first seven days. Start your free deliveries, download the Postmates app, and use the promo code MBA. Anxiety, stress, need something to calm yourself down,
1: Moving uh, deeper into the back end, their real superstar right now in terms of the linebacking core is Demario Davis. He's kind of their Eric Kendricks right now, although he is no slouch as a blitzer either. But what really fascinates me is his coverage stats, because he's got, like, 11 pass breakers or something. He's been very, very good in coverage, but in terms of, like, how many receptions he allows, it's actually higher than you'd think for a guy who a lot of people are, and I think rightly, saying was a Pro Bowl snub. And I think where that perception comes from is because his actual yards per cover snap allowed, the, the actual yardage he gives up is better than Eric Kendricks. Eric Kendricks leads the league in terms of how many snaps between every reception. He gives up the fewest receptions per snap in football, but he gives up like something like the tenth most or the tenth fewest uh, yards per cover snap. So, you know, some of those catches have actually been useful. For Demario Davis, he gives up a bunch of catches, but there's a lot on his resume that are like one yards, two yards, even catches for a loss. He also has nine run stops in the last four weeks, which is pretty good, and has generally been a good run defender throughout the season. He's really emerged as as a superstar, and if you look at his production, it is really similar to Eric Kendricks. I think that you can just think of them having their own version of Eric Kendricks playing as well as Eric Kendricks does. In terms of the defensive line, uh, they have Cameron Jordan. Of course, he is the superstar. He talked a bunch of trash because reporters keep asking players for some reason about the Minneapolis Miracle and, like, annoying them, and he's like, just shut up, and apparently that's trash talk, but uh, he's a, an excellent pass rusher, and he's op- always very disruptive. If you look at the teams who have had the most success against the Saints defense, they are trapping him, they're pinning and pulling him, they're doing things to to specifically target uh, Cam Jordan, and in some of those games, they still had, like, Sheldon Rankins and Marcus Davenport, two guys who are going to be very crucially missing from this game, uh, but... Even with those guys, those teams would still really pay the most attention to Cam Jordan, and it kind of makes sense. I mean, he's the superstar of that defense. So to me, at least along the defensive line, it kind of reminds me of the Chargers configuration. Vikings did great against Joey Bosa, although, you know, you have to go repeat that performance. That's a tall order, but they really felt like, you know, they had Joey Bosa. There is a, a Trey Hendrickson on the Saints who's doing okay. I feel like that kind of equates to, like, Melvin Ingram, who you have to pay attention to, but you don't have to, like, specifically game plan against. And if you game plan against Bosa, you can move the ball against the Chargers. And I kind of feel like you can do the same in terms of the run game against uh, the New Orleans Saints. Obviously, DeMario Davis uh, presents a problem. uh, But, you know, Kiko Alonso is there. He has been up and down, especially down this, this stretch here where the Saints have been white hot. He hasn't necessarily been. And so these kind of like areas to pinpoint sort of emerge where you can actually move the ball on this Saints defense. So one thing that I like to do when it comes to, uh, you know, previewing a team, especially a team that is supposed to be very good and very difficult to beat, is to look at, okay, who did pull that off, right? Who did well against them? And I am going to highlight three teams here. Uh, I mentioned two of them before, the Rams and the Titans, and also the 49ers. And again, if you know what the the common thread is here, you either follow me on Twitter and you got a spoiler, or you are a lot smarter than I am, because it took me a while to kind of figure this out, and I had to research it a while to kind of identify even the pattern because I just don't know, uh, you know, other teams in the NFL well enough, but all of those three teams are wide zone teams. Wide zone is the name that I guess I've started calling the scheme that those three teams run, the Shanahan and, uh, yes, the Kubiak-Stefanski thing that they're running here with Kirk Cousins, the thing that McVeigh runs with Jared Goff and what he ran with Cousins when he was in Washington, the scheme built on outside zone and then outside zone uh, run action and a lot of bootlegs and throwing in screens in there when they start to get too aggressive, that whole scheme kind of is taking over the league a a little bit, or at least just the use of, of play action, because then you can count the Ravens and what they're doing too, as well as the Chiefs. But when you watch some of the explosive plays in the Saints games against the Rams, Niners, and Titans, uh, you see. I mean, the Rams and and Niners actually beat them, and the Titans got close, and they managed to move the ball on the defense at least. Uh, so even though they didn't win that game, I still think that it's a useful example, and you see examples of plays that the Vikings run all the time. And I think this is actually a good chance, especially if there are new listeners who are just now tuning in for the playoffs, a good chance to go over some of those wide zone concepts, some of the things that have been staples for the Vikings, and just Let's talk about what they are and how they work a lot of the times you know the way that these plays are constructed is you have route concepts and route combinations that are you know designed to attack certain coverages and then you just staple them to a rollout right you tell the wide receivers what to do whether or not there's play action but if it's a longer developing route or if it's something that maybe needs to attack a certain part of the field like an intermediate route you staple that to play action to hopefully get the linebackers to suck up get a safety to hesitate or just buy the quarterback a little bit of extra time for longer developing stuff to be put together already talked about one of these, which is Yankee. I think my favorite example of the Vikings using Yankee uh, was one of the Long Digs touchdowns against the Eagles. Uh, If you remember, that was a game where where Kirk Cousins really turned it on. It was, uh, or or maybe the, I I believe the go-ahead touchdown against the Broncos in that comeback game was a rollout with a Yankee concept, or not the 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 go-ahead touchdown. It, that was a rollout with a different concept, but I believe the long one to Diggs was a, a deep post with an over-stapled to it, and it gets the safety to come underneath, and then it just leaves the cornerback in a completely impossible position. And, you know, the key here is having success, you know, running that wide zone. Enough success to... C- continue to justify calling it i think that's the level and that's a low level of success you don't need a lot to continue to call it uh you just need enough to basically be in down and distance situations where uh, you know run action works because then you're, you can open up the bootleg part of your playbook you can exactly do that on third and nine when you know a run play is basically a concession and the defense doesn't need to to really keep any eyes on the running back. Now, there is an interesting thing that had happened here with the Packers, and I've talked about it a bunch, where they basically just said, screw the running back on all the plays, we'll tackle him eventually. We'll take extra successful runs, but we're not going to let you get that play action and we're taking that trade-off. And they did this in both games. They're the only team to really do it. The Raiders kinda did it, but they gave up on it when Dalvin Cook started shredding them. And for the Packers, as you know, it really stifled the offense and it created a whole bunch of pressure, not to mention, you know, just killing the interior line a whole bunch of times in those games really proved to be like really difficult to move the ball Uh, one thing that I wanted to see was if the Bears were going to do it in week 17 even though that game didn't mean anything you know if they were game planning and it really seemed like Matt Nagy was trying to approach that game like it was a normal game and game planning trying to win it I would kind of expect them to do that and take away all the play action and they didn't and play action actually worked really well in that game so I, I don't know if anybody else is really still copying what the Packers did or if they're you know attributing that success to something else I don't know maybe I'm just wrong but but it doesn't seem like that's going to be something that, you know, teams just do inside and out and kill wide zone schemes with that. I I think that eventually somebody's going to catch on and do that, but it doesn't seem like that's the route that teams are electing to take. So it's going to be something to watch with the Saints to see if they do that and, and counter this scheme that has handed them three of their four worst defensive performances on the season. But really key to this and into getting, you know, uh, linebackers to bite on play action, which is, you know, if you look at the big plays that Tannehill and Garoppolo and Goff were able to generate, a lot of them include rollouts and play action and, and you know, linebackers getting sucked out of position because they're trying to play the run. And a huge part of it that we've talked about on this show a ton is, is getting a good fake, and it's not necessarily calling it in situations where a fake is plausible or where where a run is plausible, although that is probably, I mean, you can't do this on third and 14, right? But it really is the acting job. The the way that the linebacker, that the lineman and the quarterback play play action versus play an actual run play has to be basically identical. Kirk Cousins has talked about this a ton, and he's one of the best in the league at that, and so I, I really think you can generate explosive plays with these same concepts. A huge part of this whole uh, configuration is going to be Adam Thielen, and there was a play in the Week 16 game against Tennessee where A.J. Brown took a slant to the house, and that's something that they've kind of shown themselves to be susceptible to. Uh, they've, they've shown themselves to be susceptible to a lot of stuff like, you know, little crossers and stuff out of the slot. That's going to be Adam Thielen's job, and, and Thielen has been pretty quiet uh, since coming back from his hamstring injury. There's only been a couple of games, right, but he's only gotten like four targets and, and not really that much production. He's been coming back kind of slow whether that's because he's not healthy or just because, you know, the rhythm is kind of disrupted and he has to get his feet back under him. Hopefully this this week 17 kind of mini bye week situation helps with that. And we'll see, you know, more of an explosive Adam Thielen, more of what we were used to seeing from him uh, in this playoff game. If not, it'll make for a really exhausting offseason talker. But some of the other routes that have been like consistently beating uh the Saints off of these play action concepts, or even just in like some straight drop back situations with, you know, Shanahan and McVeigh and McVay and, uh, and Tannehill and the Titans are like comebacks and and deep curls and, and deep crossers and stuff, things that Adam Thielen have typically has typically been the go-to guy for. Uh, whereas Stefan Diggs this year at least has been more of, of the deep threat and there's plenty of that too. But I think that specifically Adam Thielen will be like particularly important to this one. And I wouldn't be surprised to see the Saints put Marshawn Lattimore on Adam Thielen and just say, you know, that, that is, that the, the matchup we're going to hinge you on. Um, you know, Diggs has had a bigger season, so I, I think the most likely thing would be that they put him on Diggs, but I just certainly wouldn't be surprised to see them look at the way that they have lost Plays in the past and say that's what they do with Thielen. Let's make sure we shut down Thielen and we can leave uh, Stefan Diggs up to, you know, the Marcus Williams and the PJ Williams and stuff, and, and hope that those guys are smart enough to take away those route concepts. So there's a, a lot of other ways to like staple successful concepts to a rollout or something similar. And a lot of this just has to do with like which points of, of the field are you attacking. You know, a lot of these routes are variable, and it would we'd be here all day if you know we wanted to go over all the different routes and routes combinations that existed in an NFL playbook. So for the sake of, you know, being comprehensive but also simple, here's one general idea is is high-low stretching. And I've explained this on the podcast before, but in case you're new, essentially the idea is that you, you run two... Wide receivers or three wide receivers, even to a similar area of the field. What you want to do is this is a way to attack zone coverage, and usually the routes are designed in a way that also attack man coverage. And so, say a defender is tasked with guarding the area between five yards from the line of scrimmage and 15 yards from the line of scrimmage. Well, what if you ran a guy at five yards and ran a guy at 15 yards? Both of those guys are that defender's responsibility, and now he has to choose between one or two, and you usually find a guy wide open. And a lot of the time, you don't even need to like. Declare those yardages ahead of time because you don't know what the coverage is. If you have a smart wide receiver, and Diggs and Thielen are very good at this, Kyle Rudolph is very good at this, you can just tell them, you know, fi- that's why you you hear announcers talk about all the time finding the hole in the zone. That's really what they're talking about, is choosing which depth to throw to, or to, to run their route to, and hopefully they're on the same page of the, the quarterback in terms of which depth to throw to, a lot of the times they are, teams are pretty good at this, this is like what they practice every day. Also, this is the issue, that, like one of the main issues with Laquan Treadwell, and why he never caught on in the NFL. He couldn't really figure that out, he couldn't get his route depths correct, and even in times when the route depth was predetermined for him, he also messed that up too, he just never really figured that particular thing out, and there were some other ability issues uh, that we don't need to go over right now. The other thing that I really noticed the uh, the Saints falling victim to was just straight up inside and outside zone runs. And that is something that that really bodes well for the Vikings. And you can find plenty of examples in this back in week two against the Rams and in week 16 against the Titans. It's not something that they've fixed all year. It's just something that hasn't really been tested a lot because there aren't any wide zone schemes in the NFC South, at least as far as I think. So it's not something that they've had, like, a lot of time to work on. But essentially the way that those zone runs work is that they are declaring a certain uh, lineman. Usually it's, it's a defensive tackle, sometimes it's a defensive end sometimes you can like very specifically target a guy who's very good and make him the read on the play so that he's always in the wrong spot and you can kind of neutralize him that way that's what uh, teams would do with like Aaron Donald all the time and essentially you ask the running back to read it you know if the defensive tackle gets leverage one way you go the other way and sometimes it's a two level thing okay if the defensive tackle gets leverage one way you know if if he has inside leverage you go outside if he has outside leverage you read the other defensive tackle and you go left or right of him depending on what leverage he has on the offensive lineman the whole point of it, though, is essentially to ask offensive linemen to make very difficult blocks not necessarily from a power perspective, but from getting in the right position perspective and that's why you draft guys like Garrett Bradbury and Pat Elfline who are uh, you know, who have strength issues and that shows up in pass blocking all the time but in terms of run blocking, they can get to their spots very often. Riley Reef is also a zone run blocking scheme type guy and there's going to be a whole bunch in the next draft and we're going to talk about it a ton in March. But the idea here is that your uh, success doesn't revolve around hitting those difficult blocks if you don't get the reach block or something that they will often ask uh, garrett bradbury or klein or Elfline to do which is get on the other side of the lineman from where you you started you know if he starts on your right shoulder you have to get all the way across him to the right of him and get on now he's on your left shoulder that's a really difficult thing to do and if he doesn't do it the running back should technically be able to read it and adjust the lane he attacks based on what happens there so you're asking uh, linemen to do difficult things and if they do those difficult things then the play can be very successful but if not you still have a chance if the running back reads it right this by the way is why Mike Boone being in the game was such a difficult uh, thing for the run game in the Packers game now he figured it out and he got a little bit of momentum and he beat he beat up the Bears uh, you know interceptions and 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 turnover stuff aside but you know you get the idea But what I noticed with the Saints is that plan A works a lot. And Derrick Henry got, you know, some explosive plays. Todd Gurley got some explosive plays. Raheem Mostert got some explosive plays. Those are all play calls and play designs that are in the Vikings playbook that we see them run all the time. There's a ton of tape out there of those three teams beating up the Saints using plays that the Vikings use, and I think that right there is the reason that I do think the Vikings can move the ball on the Saints, and I I think this is going to be a shootout, and I think everybody does. I mean, the over-under is like 49 and a half, but shoot, I took the over on it. I really think that both teams can move the ball on both teams, and it's going to be a track meet, and it's going to be a matter of, of who can keep up with who. The Saints seem to be specifically susceptible to the things that the Vikings do, so if they just are themselves, if they don't overthink it, and if they bring out the concepts that got them here, I think that they can have a lot of offensive success. So that is going to do it for this episode of Locked on Vikings. Tomorrow we will talk about Drew Brees and Alvin Kamara and Michael Thomas and how to slow down that offense. Uh, But for now, hopefully this gives you at least a sense that the Vikings can make make a game out of this thing, even though they're 8-point underdogs. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at LukeBronNFL. You can find the show on Twitter at LockedOnVikings. On Vikings. This show is available anytime you find your favorite podcasts, like Spotify, Himalaya, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, whatever you like, or you can always ask your smart device to play podcast Locked On Vikings. I will see you all tomorrow, and as always, Skull.
0: Hey sports fans. My name is Ben Beacon. and I'm the host of Locked On Wolves, the Minnesota Timberwolves podcast on the Locked On NBA network. The Wolves might be in the middle of what's turned out to be a pretty miserable season, but there's still plenty to talk about. From the aftermath of the trade deadline to looking ahead at what moves Gerson Rosas and the front office might be planning for the summer, to the possibility that all star snub Carl Anthony Towns could go off on any given night, it's still going to be a fun spring. Tune in to Lockdown Wolves daily, Monday through Friday. I'm Ben Beacon with Lockdown Wolves, and we'll catch you next time.